Welcome to the Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive, where you have access to all the amazing insights Dr. Finlayson Fife has shared through hundreds of interviews. I'm Mackenzie, Dr. Finlayson Fife's assistant, and we are so glad that you're here. This podcast was originally produced and published by Tammy Hill of the Live Your Why podcast and is entitled Sexuality and Being Single with Dr. Jennifer Finlayson-Fife. So Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining. Would you like to tell our audience a little bit about what you're doing right now, um, things they can look for? Sure. Um, so I um, I live in Chicago and I um, am LDS and I was a student at BYU and then got my PhD at Boston College in counseling psychology. And I wrote my dissertation on LDS women and sexual agency. And so I've had kind of a focus of my work is working with LDS um, individuals and couples around sexuality and what I call sexual integration, that is kind of coming to deeper peace with our sexuality, as well as integrating that with our highest values. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my work is in helping people improve their relationship uh, with themselves and with their spouses, if they have a spouse. So I do a lot of online courses and podcasts and do coaching um, and as well as counseling in the state of Illinois. So, yeah. Great. I know that I've attended some of your um, sessions before and just have really appreciated your um, attitude and the differentiation approach to sexuality. So let's jump in. You know, I teach um, the marriage preparation, marriage enhancement and healthy sexuality classes at BYU. And I get a lot of questions from students, especially those who aren't married yet. So if we can kind of start with single students or single individuals and then end up maybe with more questions towards the married folks, that would be perfect. Mm -hmm. So my first question, one a question I get all the time is, where's the line? Where's the line for chastity? And um, I know what I believe and how I teach about it, but I'm really interested to hear how do you teach where the line is? Hmm. I find that to be like, honestly, an extremely difficult question. <laughs> yes. It's a very hard first question because I don't really like answering those kinds of questions because I don't really think it's up to me to define it. I more like mm -hmm. to help people think about how to think about it. Mm -hmm. And also, um, how to say it, I think sometimes we approach sexuality and chastity too much from a kind of legalistic frame and more of an idea of what we shouldn't do. And, you know, if we do, we are bad and we do harm and this kind of thing, as opposed to a way of thinking about ourselves, our sexuality, and how we're in relationship to one another. And, you know, that chastity is, I think when we're young, we tend to think of it as the don'ts mm -hmm. and that crossing lines will um, take us away from God and is sort of sexuality as Satan's pathway. I think as we mature in our spirituality and sexuality, we see chastity more as a way of being a kind of peaceful relationship with our sexuality, with ourselves, 
and a kind of loving way of being in relationship to ourselves and others. So I think, you know, the For the Strength of Youth manual Mm -hmm. tends to be more legalistic, and that's probably right on target for adolescents. I mean, strict guidelines, that's helpful because having those um, guardrails is valuable for protecting children and adolescents um, and young adults from their worst impulses and helping them kind of stay within bounds that allow them to develop and for them to continue to mature. I think as people grow into deeper adulthood, um, I think it means really considering with a lot of honesty who you are, what you believe is right, what you embrace and choose, um, and how that then shapes and impacts your choices. And doing this as honestly and deliberately as you can, even though often those choices are inconvenient and uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But I think if you don't take kind of deep ownership of what you're choosing and who you want to be and how you want to be in relationship to your sexuality, it will stunt your development to think of it in terms of what other people tell you you should and shouldn't do. It's also harder to, how to say it, to even be compliant with the law of chastity if you're thinking of it as somebody else's rule that's being pushed onto you. Mm-hmm everybody's i mean every i i think it's just not one person's view um you can have within the church thousands of different views of what the behavioral yes things are that's right and so i think you know i know that sounds maybe like i'm punting but i'm really not <laughs> i think you know living the law of chastity is hard mm-hmm. and the more you and i have found in my research and uh with women that i studied for my dissertation women who really kind of took claim of the law of chastity as something that they wanted for themselves were really able to act in a very conservative way leading up to marriage and move very comfortably into marriage because they really owned it as their choice and what they wanted. And so I think this is much more important Mm -hmm. than someone to describe to someone else what they should and shouldn't do. I'm I'm not trying to say there's no standards or or positions. But I think this idea of ownership is very important in young and later adulthood of who you want to be, of how you choose to be in relationship to your sexuality and what you believe is true and right. Because then you can make choices that accrue to your strength Mm -hmm. rather than your frustration, resentment, and immaturity. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's a big... Big answer for where's the line? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not my strength necessarily to just say. I think my students would look at me and say, yeah, well, where's the line? <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I exactly. I, I get this question a lot, really, yeah. because it's easier. And it I mean, is I easier. Think a, simple, a, a simple framework is. I mean, what you're ultimately getting at is, am I doing something but that betrays my integrity, harms mm-hmm. me, or harms another person? Yes. That, that's really, I, you can't mess with that without messing with your sense of self. Yes. So 
it's easier to want someone else to define it than to really take this on this question on to ourselves and take it seriously. Right. I le- I really appreciate the way you said that. And um, just so you know, when I teach it, I say that really is up to you. Um, I personally believe that you should understand what happens physiologically when you become sexually aroused and when you recognize that you're becoming sexually aroused and you don't want to stop what you're doing, that's probably the best time to stop. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, right. do you think that's an okay way to yeah. answer? Oh, yeah. Well, yes, I do. I mean, I think that's absolutely true, that arousal is not, that's not a great time to be making decisions for yourself. Yes, right. So the more you've sort of thought purposefully about this and who you want to be and what you desire, that's um, going to be very important for shaping the choices and how you relate to the issue of desire and arousal. Yes, Yes, I agree. Um, tell me how a young person, you know, that I'm a lot older than you and I, these children are growing and having so many sexual messages. How do you learn to relate to yourself sexually? When you say when mm-hmm. you relate to your sexuality, um, I'm not, I, I know as a woman and from my experiences sexually, more about myself. But before you're sexually mm-hmm. active, how do you learn to really relate and understand yourself sexually? Well, I think one way is to not be so terrified of the existence of desire and arousal. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think sometimes how a lot of my clients have been in relationship to their sexuality is to, out of fear, push it down. Mm-hmm. and sort of deny its existence. It's like, it's a scary feeling. I shouldn't be having it. Um, and so there's no room to kind of allow the existence of your sexual nature to be knowable to you. And there's a difference of from allowing something to be knowable and making decisions in the face of it. There's a difference between that and indulgence, right? So I think if we just suppress or just indulge, it's spiritually off. Mm-hmm. It's destructive. There's maturity in being able to tolerate an awareness of desire, an awareness of arousal, and even feel good about the reality of those feelings Mm -hmm. while making wise choices and choices in line with what you believe is right. And so you're redirecting that and you're kind of channeling those feelings. You know, those are the people that tend to do best is they aren't, they don't see the sexuality or the passion or the hunger of any kind, running them, but more they're a part of being human Mm -hmm. and they're more able to make good decisions in the face of those feelings. Yes. And this is true for every part of life. You know, you Mm -hmm. can feel anger, you can feel jealousy, you can feel, you can feel antisocial feelings. I mean, and the people that are healthiest tend to sort of recognize, okay, this is happening, but what do I choose in the face of that? What can I make sense of or learn from this? to do and act in a way that I know is decent and fair and that I can live with. Um, So when your children, I don't know, are they old enough to head off to college yet? Uh, Yes, I have one in college, yeah. So Mm -hmm. when your kids um, move on into college and maybe move from home, is that what you're focusing more in your teaching throughout their lives is that now you're going to be in situations where you're going to have more choices what, with what you, um, how you feel, how you respond. And I think it's best before you get in those situations to understand what, what is it you want to be or who is it you want to become. 
Yeah, exactly. That's, that's something that I talk about in my How to Talk to Your Kids About Sex course is that, and this is an idea that the Iyers in their um, book, Linda and Richard Iyer, talk mm-hmm. about, is really helping kids to think, you know, in their early adolescence about this question of what really matters to me? What do I want to embrace around my sexuality? Who do I want to become? And that they're making this self-directed decision. The Iris talk about that as, as very important for it to become, to belong to the, mm-hmm. to the emerging adult. Mm-hmm. Because if it's regulated from the outside, they will first be less successful, but also their relationship to sexuality will be much more fraught. So the more you can internalize that as a choice that you make, the more that those choices will be lining up with what you want to create and they'll accrue to your strength. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, there's, it, there's just to put it, sometimes I do it in the frame of food because it helps people see it a little more clearly, but you can have two people who might make decisions to not eat a lot of sugar, but one can do it in a way that creates a lot of resentment and anxiety and vacillating between repression and compulsion, mm-hmm. you know, like overeating versus then dieting because they're in a kind of external referencing demand. Right. I shouldn't eat it. I'm bad that I want it. I have to say no to it if I'm going to be a legitimate person, that kind of thing. Versus somebody who's like, oh yeah, I can certainly recognize that that looks appealing, that I like it, but I want to be healthy and I want that good, the goodness of eating nutrient-rich foods. And so I understand that that's appealing, but ultimately what I want is this other mm-hmm. course, but it's coming from who do I want to be? Right. What matters to me? Because then you can say no to things that could be appealing in the sort of initial sense, but that are, the choices are accruing to you being your better self mm-hmm. and what you really desire ultimately. Mm-hmm. That's uh, kind of the focus of how I teach is to understand your why. Yeah. What is it you're here for? What are you yeah. doing? And that's why this podcast is called Living Your Why. Mm. So I like that analogy. Mm-hmm. Um, when you um, teach about uh, sexual um, understanding your body sexually, your different body parts, self- sexual self-discovery versus masturbation, can you kind of help navigate that conversation with me um, to help so many students? Have, I, I actually had this happen a few years ago. We were talking in class, and I had mentioned um, and defined virginity. And I had a student, a young woman, stay after class, and she was emotional, and I sat with her for a minute. Anyway, long story short is that in her teenage years, she had masturbated, and she had felt that she had lost her virginity mm. in that in doing that, and she had denied herself blessings of being in the temple because she felt she was unworthy. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I think we need to normalize the fact that we have body parts that feel good when we touch them. Um, yeah. what, help me kind of know how to navigate that type of a conversation. Well, you know, I've sometimes had people who have asked me, you know, why are you pro-masturbation? And I think the fair position is to say, I'm not so much pro-masturbation as I'm, I'm against a lot of shaming of pretty normal developmental behavior because the mm-hmm. shaming and fear around it makes it very difficult to not be terrified of sexuality and to create a healthy relationship to these emerging feelings. 
And so right. I'm all for sexual restraint. Really, I am. I'm all for conservative sexual and thoughtful sexual behavior. But when we are terrified of it and we've just sort of got a death grip on its existence, it's very hard to find a peaceful relationship to this passion and channel it into productive ends. I mean, I think personally it's healthier to both normalize the, 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 the reality of sexual pleasure, that you can know your own body's capacity for pleasure, that it's a wonderful gift, mm-hmm. that it's a lovely part of being human, mm-hmm. and that being in relationship to that gift in a way that prepares you to be partnered is, and prepares you to be capable of an intimate relationship and a peaceful relationship with yourself is what matters. So being indulgent and obsessive in either way, really, I mean, mm-hmm. obsessively mm-hmm. afraid of those feelings or that you've ever touched your own genitals, that's an overreaction. Mm-hmm. Um, fearful in the, you know, like obsessive in the other way where people can become compulsive about it, that's mm. detrimental to your spiritual and emotional progression. So it's a little bit more being in more of a relationship of moderation. I think culturally for us to be a little more accepting, but also channeling and directing mm-hmm. those, like, yes, you're going to be having those feelings. Nothing is going wrong. Right. Everything's going right. Mm-hmm. You're, you're emerging into young adulthood, right? And right. so be grateful for it. But you have a greater responsibility now. And how am I going to be in relationship to these feelings? And I'm going to sometimes feel feelings I'm not sure I should feel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so can I, and it's a little bit of being on a bit of a ride, but can I kind of learn from it and be wise within it and be true to my higher ideals as I do this imperfectly? But that's okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think sometimes we're so perfectionistic mm-hmm. that we really harm ourselves in the process. And I'm not saying to let go of our ideals, claim them, but also understand we're in a process of maturation and integration and being a little kinder to ourselves in that high ideal. We're really, we're really holding ourselves to a high ideal. When we do that with a lot of compassion, I think it can create a wonderful reality in our lives. I love that. When we do it with a lot of harshness, it actually is destructive and can actually create a lot of harm. Mm-hmm. I, I know that's true. Um, mm-hmm. it, it seems like you have lots of extremes. It's extreme this way or extreme this way and kind of come to middle ground a little is what I'm yeah. hearing. Yeah. And we do teach that idea, you know, moderation in all things, mm-hmm. that, the, that the truth is so often in this middle way. You, you know, I, I think a good definition of meekness is the middle way. It's like not extreme anger nor extreme angerlessness. Mm. That there's something in this finding this, the truth often exists in that tension. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times people think if you allow even a little acceptance, it means you have no boundary. And that's not it either, because, Mm -hmm. you know, how can I be in relationship to any pleasure in my life? If you have no pleasure in your life, you can't be joyful. But if you live your life only by pleasure, you can't be joyful either. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So when, um, I have quite a few people who are, um, you know, graduated and moving on, and they would really like to know, and I would too, if you were to write the Strength of Youth Handbook for single adults who are a little older, how would it be different? Mm-hmm. I, and I understand that we need to have, I love the strength of youth in many ways. It does set boundaries and helps describe behaviors that are are wise 
and uh, like mm-hmm. you already mentioned, but we have also not really guided um, singles who are still not married or even maybe married, but that haven't really gotten comfortable with the idea of not having particular rules that they should be dating by. And and isn't the strength of youth a little immature for me when I'm 30? Um, I just, if you were to write it, what would you say? Gosh, that's another huge question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think these are hard. You know, I wrote a long piece on this uh, when I presented in New York City That's that's on my website. I think it's called Singles and sexuality and singledom, maybe it's called. And Mm -hmm. I do lay out some kind of guiding principles, but I don't know that they would be a sufficient guidance, but I'm, I'm trying to remember some of the things that I talked about there, but it's challenging because you're moving into a full adult body and a full adult mind while still not being partnered. Right. And so there's a, I mean, if we even look historically we're getting married much, much later than any of our four parents have. Mm -hmm. And even then a generation ago, much later. And so in a context of a society that's much more sexually focused. So this is not an easy challenge. And I don't have the answers for that, to be honest, because Mm -hmm. I think there is a kind of schism in those two realities that sets up people to possibly be in a much more self-disparaging position because of that incongruity, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not easy. And I don't know that I have all the answers, but I think what I would be thinking about is these same kind of core questions. If I've externalized this standard, this is going to be much harder for me than me really coming to my own testimony to use that language or to my own clarity about who I want to be and how I want to be in relationship to my sexuality. Again, the more you claim it as a choice, the more you take ownership of it, and the more it accrues to your strength. Mm-hmm. And so that's not an unimportant step. And then thinking about, is the way I'm in relationship to my sexuality, and this is part of that question, preparing me less or more to be in a loving, peaceful relationship mm-hmm. to myself and a future partner? I love that. So how am I you know, what am I, how are my choices? What are they accruing to? And how am I in relationship to someone else? Am I doing, you know, even restraint is an act of love, right? So mm-hmm. how am I in relationship to another person sexually? And is that accruing to their well-being mm-hmm. and their strength? Mm-hmm. So you really kind of tether it to love and love being whatever accrues to our strength as draws us closer to God, to ourselves, and to others. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm not saying I always know what those look like for every person in every situation. Sure. And, uh, you know, as people, it's a different thing if you become widowed or you're divorced. Mm -hmm. It's a different level of challenge. But I think taking that up with God and with your, you know, your almost honest self is a very important process. Mm -hmm. You know, I think sometimes... It's easier to stay in the legalistic, tell me yes and no mm-hmm. was. For sure. And it's a, it, it feels like or even looks more spiritual than being willing to take a deeper responsibility for yourself and who you are and the consequences of your choices and really take an honest engagement with God around some of those questions. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, um, I like that idea of... You know, it is easier to read what we can and can't do versus 
what is it that I'm about and and getting on our knees and coming to understand that. So yes. I've always been curious about this and may I don't mean to give you another hard question. I'm gonna give you all the hard <laughs> questions I have though since I've got you. <laughs> so this this is a question that has personally kind of confused me and in my reading and in my study, I haven't really come to a place that I understand it. But mm-hmm. historically, we understand that women weren't really considered sexual or having the possibility of being orgasmic. Mm-hmm. And the first vibrators were actually developed by doctors to help women be able to orgasm so they wouldn't be hysterical. And so mm-hmm. like having an orgasm even with a doctor, but it was viewed as something that was healthy and good for their Mm -hmm. mental health. And then there's Mm -hmm. some period of time where all of a sudden we learn that this is bad, um, that this is Mm -hmm. sinful behavior. And I, I don't know how to put my head around all of that, where in, if you were born in one generation, this would have been considered a healthy practice for your mental health mm-hmm. and if you're born in another de- you know generation mm-hmm. this this touch for orgasm or masturbation to orgasm mm-hmm. is considered a sinful behavior um can you like help me with that yeah well maybe a little <laughs> but uh, first of all there's somebody who did a historical overview of the kind of shift in framing of masturbation within church theology. And it was a really long paper. It was written maybe 12 or 15 years ago. Hmm. And anyway, I I don't, I can't remember enough about that to do any justice to it whatsoever. But, but the the reality is that those meanings have shifted and they've often shifted within the, the meaning that's been happening in the larger culture. Uh, One thing is like in colonial America, women were seen as sexual and and in fact, they were seen as really equal to men in their sexuality. Women's sexuality had a lot of respect in colonial America. And so there was no question about women's pleasure as being legitimate and important. As we moved into Victorian England and Victorian America, right, that culture was much more sexually repressive of women's sexuality. I don't know all the economic and social changes that drove that But especially as we got into the Industrial Revolution, kind of telling women that they were chaste and asexual was in part a way to deal with some of the anxiety, I think, that was there culturally, that men were now working away from the home. The wife was being left at home. And so to kind of make her into this almost childlike, Hmm. worshipful, asexual figure was a way of kind of dealing with some of the social anxiety around this kind of division of men's and women's spheres. So while women were going to Victorian doctors to have orgasms, they didn't think of them as sexually pleasurable. They saw them as like a mental health practice. Mm -hmm. Now, this is that's how much women were seen as not inherently sexual. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so it was seen as healthy, right. but not pleasurable per se. Okay. You know, of course, of course, these women kept going to the doctor over and over again <laughs> right, for treatment that they never healed from. <laughs> but um, I think that in our faith tradition, in our culture, we've become more anxious about sexuality in part since the sexual revolution. So there's been more focus in our church instruction um, around sexual 
inhibition, I think in part because the culture hasn't been sort of supporting an ethic mm, of more waiting until marriage and so on. So I don't think people were so obsessed or concerned with it in the 30s, 40s, 50s, because the larger culture was basically a, right. a sexual restraint culture. Mm-hmm. And so I think people imagined, yes, it happens. That's not the end of the world. That's just a part of being normal, normal human beings, where I think we are more We've been more anxious about it. And, you know, some of those things have shifted a little. You know, it's, yes. it's not as explicitly in the, you know, the manuals as it was before, but we're not very close yet to normalizing it. And I think, um, again, we can normalize and still give a direction to our sexual development and a higher expectation of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we're still pretty anxious about sexuality as a group. Mm, for sure. Oh, mm-hmm. I had never considered I that this mental health facet of it all hadn't been considered pleasurable. I just assumed that, of course, that was pleasurable, right? Yeah. But it wasn't really considered yeah. sexual pleasure. It wasn't considered sexual right. pleasure, exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. So how interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I appreciate your insight. You're so smart. Do you just think about sex all the time? <laughs> <laughs> A little bit. <laughs> I bet I bet you do. I know I think about it a lot myself. <laughs> so preparation for marriage, preparation for a honeymoon, overcoming the shame that you might be feeling as you become sexually active. Any voice to that? Mm-hmm. Cut those ideas? Well, I you know, in my dissertation research, the women who who actually obeyed the law of chastity the most were actually the most comfortable with the fact of their sexuality mm-hmm. and their capacity for pleasure. You know, like several mm-hmm. of the women who transitioned most happily into marriage, they had masturbated as adolescents a few times, or, but had made a decision, you know, hey, I, I want to really not do that. But they mm-hmm. weren't really hard on themselves about it. They just kind of were like, you know, I, I really want to wait. It matters to me to wait. And so it was more seen as this exciting thing they were looking forward to, mm-hmm. a positive part of being a woman, a positive part of life. And they really wanted its full expression to be in the context of a marriage with someone they really loved. But there was no sense, I shouldn't say there was no sense. They might've felt guilty if they went a little too far in their, you know, while they were dating their spouse or something. Right. But there, it wasn't like laden with guilt. Right. It was more this, I want this, and I'm, we're working towards that possibility. And so they moved, they didn't feel guilt. They didn't feel a sense of loss. They felt a sense of beginning and opening mm-hmm. up and possibility. Oh. Yes. I think people, women that feel more afraid of sexuality, more shameful about its existence within them, sometimes will take a lot of safety in this sort of virginity status and its sort of suppression. And when you're in that mindset, getting married is not going to solve it for you because now it's okay, mm-hmm. but it's not, doesn't belong to the woman. She doesn't mm-hmm. have a sense of ownership that this is something about her. She maybe now is opening up for the benefit of her spouse, mm-hmm. but she feels, you know, I'm sure a, a sense of being invaded and a sense of loss primarily. And so it's very hard to move into a kind of embracing of one's sexuality if you've been terrified of it, feeling Mm -hmm. that it's going to kind of take you down, that you'll lose your social status, you'll lose your status in God's eyes. How do you embrace that? How do you feel good about the existence of that? So 
you know, one of the best markers of somebody's transition into marriage was how did they feel about their first sexual arousal? And it was the women who felt like a kind of excited anticipation mm-hmm. that really defined all their choices. And because they kind of claimed, the women that I interviewed all kind of decided they really, it mattered to them to wait until marriage, even though they were excited about it. Right. They did very well with a lot of chastity. The women that felt much more afraid and ashamed, they had a much harder time negotiating their dating relationships because it was kind of an externalized idea. It was something that was expected of them. And so they were more sensitive to what other people wanted from them, including the guys they were dating. And so that disownership did not serve them well. Right. So uh, I think the answer here is to help women and men uh, feel when they feel those sexual feelings, to help to normalize them and have them consider, you know, how am I going to manage this part of who I am um, to be the person I want to be. Um, Right. Yeah. Exactly. So um, I have a question now of me, from you. If you were in my shoes and you got to see these beautiful people every day, um, Mm. what's a message you would love to tell them? Mm. Thousands of really wonderful, driven often perfectionistic, unfortunately, um, young people who really have mm-hmm. brightness and light in their eyes. They have goodness in their souls. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. I, I'm so lucky. And I just think, what would you tell them? Oh, just that they're some of the best people on the planet, really. <laughs> they really are. Yes. I mean, I think back to my BYU days and there were so many earnest, good people there. Mm-hmm. And a lot of desire to do what's good and right. And a lot of, what's the way I'd say it? Just youthful hopefulness. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, hard things that lie ahead. Yes. (laughs) Right? I mean, because, and not that people there haven't already come through some hard things. Mm -hmm. But I think, what would I want to say? Both that their desire to do and be, do what is good and to... Um, embrace a virtuous life really is great. It's a really good thing. And that virtue is a very important anchor. And by virtue, I don't mean non-sexuality or, you know, I I mean like that you really are looking to embrace and do what is good in a life that will be complex and hard and pressure you in many ways to what I might say, I mean, this is an off the cuff question, but what I might say is to say in some ways to set your sights high about what you want to create and become, but know that life will sober you up. It will, it will, it will show you sort of the rules Mm -hmm. of life. Mm -hmm. And the more you can let yourself learn from those lessons, the more ability you'll have without, without becoming sinister or disillusioned. But can I kind of let life teach me while I still try to forge and claim a virtuous life? And again, I mean virtue in the most large sense, you know, that I really embrace what is good, what creates strength in me, what creates strength in my relationships, what allows me to offer good to the world. Mm-hmm. How can I learn what that means in a complex and varied world that is often challenging to sort out what is good and right? That's a process that matters. It's the process we're supposed to be involved in. It's not about something going wrong. It is the process itself. And so I think, you know, a lot of ways when you're in college and you're kind of in the earliest form of your adulthood, you're 
you're accruing capacities, you know, an education, values, ideals, and then they matter. And as you set out on that journey, you're going to utilize the realities of life, if you're lucky, to get stronger and more able to discern in a complex world. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's beautiful advice. And, um, you know, I personally have, I've been a widow. I, there's so many things that didn't go the way I anticipated mm. starting out. And yet I know that you can make the best and do good with second, third, fourth, fifth choices from what maybe you had in mind. You can right. create something beautiful and still contribute and be that virtuous person that you love. Yeah, exactly. So, I, I love that. I would just love for you to be able to come teach sometime. It would be and yeah. so fun to learn from you. Sometime it might work. I'm out, you know, when we don't have COVID, maybe I'll be out there and we could set something up. That would but, be yeah. cool. So I don't have any more questions tonight and um, just want to thank you so much. Um, it's been a pleasure to visit with you and to kick around some thoughts I've had. And I know that the followers and my students will really appreciate your wisdom. Yeah, thanks, Tammy. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Finlayson Fife and the work that she does, check out the links in the show notes below to find her website, online courses she offers, information on upcoming events, and her free Facebook group.